0: word of God acts 17 30 and 31 the times of ignorance God overlooked but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead amen please be seated let's pray Heavenly Father, we have praised your name, we've confessed our sins, we've sung of your goodness, we've given our offering to you, and yet, God, you tell us, as the gracious God that you are, to bring all our cares to you. So, Father, I, we, we pray for those now. We pray for, first, those who are in our congregation who are, who are hurting. God, we thank you for, for healing. Uh, Jim Halbert, we pray, God, that your hand would continue to be upon him in his recovery. Father, we, we do thank you for getting both Judy and, and, and Billy through their procedures last week. Father, we pray you give a special measure of grace to that family. Uh, Father, we pray for those this morning who are grieving, uh, God, grieving the loss of a father, uh, bringing back the the memories of the the sweet gifts of uh, the father you gave them. God, we pray that you would comfort them by your Holy Spirit. We also just pray for those who are uh, experiencing a different kind of grief this morning with um, maybe not having the father that uh, they wanted, God. I pray in your kindness that you will remind them that you are gracious. Uh, you are the gracious Heavenly Father of all who come to you in faith. And Father, we, would you pray for those who are who have the desire to be a father and yet has not yet happened yet. We pray in your grace, Lord, that you would just meet them in their need. God, we thank you so much for being a God that is far bigger than than us. All of the, the things that you do throughout this world. So Father, we pray now for... Uh, the country of Mexico, God, we pray specifically that that nation would, would turn to you, God. We pray that you would end the violence that is so rampant and and the drug abuse, Father. We pray that you even use one of our own, Ashley Johnson, there to minister your truth to that nation. Uh, Father, we, we also just pray for our own nation. It just seems every day, Lord, we, we hear of more tragedies, uh, more uh, heartache. God, we pray that you would bring peace and unity to our land. Uh, we pray specifically for our, our nation's capital and all who serve there, God, as they even – uh, worry and grieve the, the the shooting of this past week. God, we pray that you would, would be with all those who serve in Congress. God, that they would realize that they are servants of you, that they are put there to do your bidding. So God, we pray that you would allow them to serve as creatures of the Creator. And God, we also just thank you so much uh, for your word and how it goes forth from different pulpits in this city. God, we pray for Sam Stevens this morning at Newkirk Baptist Church. We pray, God, that as he announces and declares the word of God, that you would build that congregation up more into your likeness, that that congregation would be a holy reflection of your righteous character. And now, God, as we turn to our own hearts this morning, this Father's Day, we pray, God, that you would soften our hearts, that when the word of God is announced, that you would apply it to our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit. God, we thank you so much for how good and kind and gracious you are uh, to us. And yet, God, we know that there are things in our life that we often value more than you. So, Father, I pray that through this message you would expose our idols. You would show us what we love more than you, God. And you would help us through the preaching of your word and by the power of your spirit to crush them. That we would have no other gods before you. um, One's made or one's imagined. God, we, we thank you that... You have given this time to the preaching of your word. We pray that through this preaching, God, through this submission to your word, that you would bind the hearts of the people apart together more so, that you would unite us in unity and love, God, that you would challenge and encourage us to, to care for one another in a, a deep and sincere way. So, Father, we pray now that you would make much of yourself. We pray that I would decrease and that you would increase. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in thy sight our Lord our rock and redeemer we ask this in Jesus name amen the declaration of independence our founding documents begin this way we hold these truths to be self evident that all men are created equal that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That is a great line that we've heard numerous times. And the symbol that has began to embody that, that phrase is uh, the Statue of Liberty. Uh, many people coming from a, a foreign land have seen that Statue of Liberty and that beacon of, of hope. This is the land of the free. And yet, in our day, we have forgotten what it means to be truly free. For when it was written, even in our Constitution, we have freedom, but not absolute or total freedom. We have freedom under God. We have a creator and we live our, live as free people under the sovereign creator, Lord. What has happened in our day is they've taken that freedom and they have divorced it from God. So we are no longer free under God, but we want to be free from God. Freedom has become the main idol of our age. Individual, personal autonomy. I can do what I want, when I want. We have divorced it from the reality of who we were created for. Lady Liberty is actually, uh, even in the the picture of the Roman goddess Libertas, uh, which is this picture of freedom, we want to make sure that we live not as as free creatures um, in our own right, but free creatures under God. I pray that as we look through this, this sermon, this text of Paul preaching against idols in his day, that we would be awakened for the idols in our own day. And really what an idol is, is, is anything that you love more than the Lord. And it's it's, it's interesting because we look at the, we we, we hear that. What can we possibly love more than the Lord? Listen to what J.I. Packer writes. He says this, what other gods could we have besides the Lord? He says, plenty. For Israel, there were Canaanite Baals, those jolly nature gods, whose worship was rampant of gluttony and drunkenness and ritual prostitution. For us, there are still the great gods. Sex, shekels in the stomach, an unholy trinity constituting one God, self. And the other enslaving trio, pleasure, possessions, and position whose worship is described as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Football, the firm, and family are also gods. For some, indeed, the list of other gods is endless. For anything that anyone allows to run his life becomes his God. And the claimants for this prerogative are legion. In the matter of life's basic loyalty, temptation is a many-headed monster. See, we live in a world that wants your main allegiance, your main devotion, to be anything but God. And it comes in numerous ways. Those of us in different stages of life may experience different temptations of leaning towards idols. But I pray that you would, would be aware that the idols are Plenty. Tim Keller, in uh, an excellent book called Counterfeit Gods, kind of drives this point home. Because usually in our day, if you talk to someone secular in in the world, and I said, you have an idol, they would be like, what are you talking about? What is this idol? Idols are images where people, physical images that bow down to it. And this is what Paul saw in his day, which we'll look at here in a moment. But listen to what what Tim Keller writes as we kind of begin our, our, our sermon and framing this. He writes, this should be on the screen, We may not physically kneel before the statue of Aphrodite, but many young women today are driven into depression and eating disorders by an obsessive concern over their body image. So they may not bow to the image of beauty, but they may live their life governed by that desire for beauty. He writes, we may not actually burn incest to Artemis, but when money and career are raised to cosmic proportions, we perform a kind of child sacrifice, neglecting family and community to achieve a higher place in business and gain more wealth and prestige. How many people do you see in our day with their desire for wealth and, and fame that they sacrifice caring for their own children? will I pray this, as, as a the the, the appetite has been wet for us to to discover what are our idols? What are we bowing to? The first point this morning is we want to be stirred with the idols of our day. Stirred with the idols of our day. Look at God's word again, Acts 17, verse 16. uh, Paul is continuing his missionary journeys and it says in verse 16, Now why Paul was waiting... For them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that their city was full of idols. Uh, the, the word provoked there uh, doesn't really do uh, justice in the English translation. Sometimes you may see greatly distressed or, or disturbed. It's really an, an infuriating Paul was waiting for his friends to come to him, and he saw the idols of the city and he was infuriated. It comes from the, the word where we get perioxim, which is a sudden attack or violent expression of a particular emotion or activity. This is not just, huh, it's curious. This was, this was an, a deep, to the core of his being, emotional response when he saw idols. And here's what I think is, is, is the problem with many evangelicals today, is that we are not provoked when we see the idols of our day. We look at them, we coddle them, we may see them, but we are not stirred from something deep within us of the hatred that has towards God. We are unaffected. Paul was stirred. Why was he stirred? Paul was stirred because he lived his life for Jesus Christ. His whole whole being was was to live for the glory of Jesus Christ, to proclaim the gospel to Jew and to Greek, to barbarian and uh, Scythian. Holy Spirit governed Paul's life. He was stirred. And I guess the simple question, are you stirred? When you see things in our day, whether it's on social media or the the news or at at work, are you stirred deep within you when you see the idols of our day? Maybe some of you say yes. You're stirred. But what do you do with that stirring? See, notice what Paul did here. I just want you to see this. It says, now when Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him, and as he saw that the city was full of idols. And this is what it says verse 17. So, it wasn't just that he was provoked emotionally, he actually did something about it. So, what did he do? He, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So he took this provocation in his spirit and didn't just sit on it. He actually responded to it. So he went to those who had had interest in religious things. He went to the Jews and the devout persons and explained to them through the scriptures who Jesus Christ was. But not just there. He went to the marketplace. He went to those people who had no idea that they needed the Lord and he, he reasoned with them about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we are not stirred, We will never go and share. The average evangelical Christian shares the gospel this many times a year. We don't share the gospel because we're not provoked within our spirit. Our emotional response to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and the hope that we have in him and the the attack against his divinity with the idols of our age should cause us to, to reason with others for the gospel of Christ. It should stir action, not apathy. The second thing that we see here is that Paul studied the idols of the day. Not only was he stirred, but he, was, he studied them. You know, Paul was waiting. Typically, when, when we are waiting, whether it's at the, at the bank or the drive-thru, what, what do we typically do? We pull out our phone, right? We don't talk to the person next to us. We don't, we don't stop and think about, about our life. We try to, to busy ourselves. Whether we want to listen to something or or watch something, we we don't like that silence of waiting. Listen, Paul was waiting, and what did he do? He saw. He looked around at the the idols of his day. How about we do this this coming week? And when you have a a brief moment of waiting, let's not look at our phones. Let's look at the idols around us. But before we even look at the idols around us, let's let's look at the idols of our own hearts. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, he says, The disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye. When you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye, you hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see it clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. And here's the beauty of this, this thing. What Jesus is saying is you need to take care of your own idols first. You need to ask God through prayer, through the scriptures, reveal what, what, are, what am I trusting in more than you? Ask him to reveal those idols for you. Because if you don't do that, you can't help your brother who also struggles with idols. And here's the thing with our idols. We often don't see where, where our idols are. We are blind to our idols. So we we need help from others to to help us even expose what our idols are. But think about this. If someone is loving something other than Jesus, God is saying, if you take care of your own, you can help others take care of theirs and help others have a a better relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that exactly why God gave us each other? That we can have a better relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ because of our relationships as a body of, of Christ? So how do we identify our own idols? It's hard to do, but how do we identify our own idols? Again, this is what Tim Keller said in an interview with Christianity Today. Someone asked him, how do you identify your own idols? He says this, look at your daydreams. When you don't have to think about something, like when you were waiting for the bus, or where does your mind love to rest? Or look at where you spend your money most effortlessly. Also, if you take your most uncontrolled emotions or the the guilt that you can't get rid of, you'll find idols at the bottom. Whenever I hear someone say, I know God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself, hear me, it means that person has something that is more important than God, because God forgives them. If you look at your greatest nightmare, if if something were to happen that would make you feel you had no reason to live, that's a God. Listen, that is hard to, to diagnose. So take some time this week and do an idol check on your own heart. What, what do you, where do your mind naturally go? What is the worst nightmare that you could have in your, in your life? In application of this principle, Pastor Justin Buzzard writes this, in terms of four potential idols that you may have, I think are common for many Americans. Number one, control. You know you have a control idol if your greatest nightmare is uncertainty. Approval. You know you have an approval idol if your greatest nightmare is rejection. Comfort. You know you have a comfort idol if your greatest nightmare is stress or demands. Power. You know you have a power idol if your greatest nightmare is humiliation or embarrassment. What are your idols? Take some time this week and figure those out. Ask God in prayer. Ask, ask a spouse or a friend, what do you think is the most important thing in my life? Uh, parents, ask your children. See if they tell you what you want to hear or something that you are dreading. There are so many common idols in our day. But in this day, in Paul's day, what was, what was their idol? Look at the text in verse 18 mean? Verse 21, kind of an aside by Luke. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. This idea of of this knowledge is the idol of Athens. They wanted new information. They wanted new knowledge. So they looked at Paul and what Paul was saying and they said he was a, a preacher of foreign divinities. So some people did not understand what Paul was saying. Paul was a monotheist. He believed that there was one God in three persons, the Father, Son, and Spirit. But here, they thought Paul was speaking of, of multiple divinities. Jesus and the, the resurrection, or uh, in the Greek word, anastasis, or anastasia. There's, a, there's the God of the resurrection and the God Jesus. They didn't understand who this was. They wanted to, to know who this new knowledge was. And Paul, being very astute and very wise, took their love for knowledge and he, and he turned it towards The gospel. The worst thing in that day would have been ignorance. Not knowing. Uh, Even one uh, uh, historian thinking about Athens says that they were so hungry for for the news of the day that even when they were being invaded, they were going about asking what was the, the latest thing happening. They were obsessed with knowledge. I think that our culture can relate a little bit. We love the, the latest information, the latest facts. We love things that are new, not things that are old and historic, but things that are new and constantly changing. So, what did Paul do here? He s- speak to the idols of the day. Number four, uh, point number three, speak to the idols of the day. So, we're kind of following Paul's example here. Uh, he was stirred by these idols and then he, he studied them. He knows what was happening in the culture. What were those idols? There's many in our day that we can, we can look to. We look to our own heart. We look to the idols of our, of our world. As I mentioned before, this this idea of individual autonomy, freedom apart from God, rather than that freedom under God. But then we have to speak. We actually have to address these things in people's lives. This is exactly what he he does here. Let me read verses 22 through 29 for context. Acts 17, beginning in verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens... I perceive that in every way that you are, a very, that you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he saved by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath. And everything, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live in all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of a dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought... Not to think that divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. If you're going to read any book on mission today, any book on contextualization, how do we go across and, and minister the gospel in foreign lands, people are going to anchor in this text. This is one of the most important texts in terms of being a missiologist or, or studying mission today. So what does Paul do here? Well, the first thing I think Paul Paul does is that he identifies with his audience. We don't exactly know the full details here because the words here in the Greek are kind of ambiguous. So sometimes when you read scholars, when they read this text, they kind of put more in there than than should be. We don't know exactly what Paul's motivation was here. We do know that he was what? That he was angry. He was infuriated by these idols. So he's not saying that having idols is a good thing, but he, he kind of just spins it a little bit and kind of leaves it out there kind of vague. You are very religious. Now, if they were hearing that you are very religious, Paul may be, I'm, I'm infuriated at the fact that you don't love the one true God, but they may have heard, oh, thanks, we are kind of religious, as a sign of, of piety. That's the introduction. He says, Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Just addressing, listen, it is very clear that you are a people that are very religious. Now, if you said that in our day, would people believe you? People kind of pride themselves in our day to be secular, maybe to be spiritual. They may use that language. It really just means I'm just kind of, I don't really care. I'm I'm agnostic. I I don't really know. It's kind of like a badge of honor in our our culture. But listen, if you're a secular person, you're worshiping something. Everybody worships something. That's the whole point of, of this text. So we may say people in our day aren't very religious, but they're still worshiping something. It's our job to help them see what they're worshiping. What are they governing their life by? Here, he says, they are very religious. And this is in verse 23, For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found also that the, with this inscription, To the unknown God. Now, some scholars think here that Paul is taking a, a homiletic license, meaning he's kind of adapting this for a sermon, because most people think that in that day they would not have a one to the unknown God, but to the unknown God's to anyone that we don't know in this pantheon of gods. But Paul is not trying to draw draw them to think about the many gods that they're worshiping in, but the one true God. So Paul's probably adapting this a little bit for his own purpose to the unknown God. Now remember, in that day, what was the most important thing? Knowledge. So what does Paul do? He addresses that knowledge and he tries to say, listen, you are ignorant about something. Let me show you the truth. He says the God... Sorry, therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Now if he says that, that which you don't know, this I'm telling you, ears would have perked up. Well, you're going to give us something new, something that we don't know. They would have kind of leaned in to what he's going to say. And then what he does is he he kind of turns it. He kind of shows them how their ignorance is actually false worship. Listen to what he says. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it. Paul jumps back to creation. Just like last week when Bobby said in speaking to the the, the Gentiles there, he went all the way back to creation. That's exactly what Paul does here. Typically, when when Paul addresses those who have no knowledge of God, those who are not Jews or are not devout, he jumps back to creation because he wants to establish that everybody's accountable to our Creator. Even our our constant, our constant Declaration of Independence, we have unalienable rights given to us by our Creator. Not divorced from God, but given to us until we could serve under God. So God is the Creator. He made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth. That word Lord there is the, is the, Israel, the covenant Israel God. He created the, the heavens and the earth. And then he kind of makes this an average observation. If God, if there is one God, who is the creator God, who made everything, this is what is not true about him. Well, he doesn't live in temples made by man. Why would the creator God who made the heavens and the earth live in a temple made by your human hands? He goes on and says, Nor is he served with human hands as though he needed anything. God needs nothing from you. He's the one who, who gives life and breath and everything to us. He's not in a temple. He, he doesn't need you. This is the bigness of our God. He's the creator. Now, some would say that Paul here is, is kind of divorcing himself from the Paul of the epistles. If you see how Paul writes the epistles, he's very uh, Old Testament oriented, uses a lot of scripture, brings things in. Well, I think everything Paul is saying here has a background in the Old Testament. Paul is trying to draw out the creator God of the Old Testament. So look at Psalm, or Isaiah 42, 5, or Psalm 57 through 15, this great picture of, of God being the Lord who creates everything. And he's kind of smacking the idols of the face of his day. You believe in many gods? I'm telling you there is one God who created everything. But not only is he the creator God, number two, he's the sovereign creator God. He is in control of everything. Look at verse 26. It says, this one God made man, made from one man every nation of mankind to live in the face of the earth, having determined a lot of periods and boundaries for their dwelling place. God is in control of history. God is the one who created one, created every nation from one man, Adam. And he gave certain periods and certain boundary lines for for time. We don't know if he means time in terms of periods of history or or lifespans. We don't exactly know. The text is kind of ambiguous. But the point is very clear. This one God both created you and ordains, or his providence uh, controls everything in this world. Now that is smacking right in the face of the many-god pantheon of Athens. Now all these gods that you're bowing to are false. There's only one God. So hear me. You can't be a Christian and believe in other gods. You cannot, you can't do that. There is only one God, according to the the, the Bible. So we believe in the one creator, sovereign God, or we don't. We don't bring other ideas and put them alongside God. That's exactly what our culture is trying to do. Isn't it interesting that we don't even talk about this anymore. We just kind of assume that uh, creation shouldn't be taught in schools. <laughs> but look, look what Paul's doing. He goes, no, listen, God created everything. It's not by, 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 by evolution. No, it's by God's sovereign hand. He spoke the world into existence. And what happens in our culture is they've almost kind of won that debate in schools. So now that everything is being taught is, is, is God is not the creator, but here's our different theories of how the world came into existence. Well, no, no. God is the creator. If you are a Christian, we say God created. Now, we could talk about the how, but we can't talk about the the who. God is the creator, sovereign creator. And what was the purpose of why he did all this? Verse 27, so that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. The reason for all of existence of, of this earth is that we may seek God and find him. This God that you don't know, I'm proclaiming to you. He quotes a couple of their own poets to kind of affirm this idea. Even that second line, for we indeed are his offspring, probably came from a a, a quote of uh, a poem written to Zeus. But here's what what Paul's doing. He's saying, listen, you're very religious, but you just don't have all the knowledge. There's things in you that are are of God because you're created in God's image, but you're just misapplying them. You're not, it's not, it's not, we are not the offspring of Zeus. We are the offspring of the almighty God. We're created in him, his image. So when you're doing evangelism to our secular world, you need to help them understand. And listen, people who, who believe differently than Christians, some of the things they believe are are in in their character. They're in their nature because they're made in the image of God. This desire to, 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 to please God, this desire to, to have a way that makes us right with, with God, whether you're a Buddhist or, or a Muslim, there's something innate in every human being that says that there's something that we have to be made right because we're sinners. Because we have fallen. Everyone knows that we are fallen. We look in our own conscience, we know that we're sinners. We just tell this is the way God has made us right, is to Christ. Not through through works. So after he kind of un- unpacks who God is, him being the sovereign creator. Then he kind of silences the idols. This is the, the Paul mic drop, right? Look at verse 30 and 31. He silences the idols of the day. So beginning in verse 29, we go there. It says, being then God's offspring, the one true God, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the imagination of, God, of man. So he's saying, listen, all these things around you, all these idols that you see in the city, how could we think that, 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 that they're God? That they're created by the, by the hands and the imagination of man when we are God's offspring. We are actually God's idols. The ones that he creates to, to show himself to the world. We are his images. Verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day. On which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The times of ignorance have are now past. So, before this conversation that Paul had with everyone there in Athens, they may not have known, but now they know. The time of ignorance have have passed. God now commands. Everyone, everywhere, to repent. To turn from idols to the living God. That's what we're called to. To turn from living with anything that's more important than, than God and turning to Jesus Christ. It says that he has fixed the day when he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. The, the passage in Isaiah chapter 2 that, that, that Lindsay read. This idea that we need to, to, to smash our idols, turn from idols, because there's a day coming, a day of the Lord when he will judge the world in regards to righteousness. And at that day, you're either going to be righteous or you're going to be unrighteous. And the only way that you can be righteous is if you are in the righteous one. Jesus Christ came, the, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. Jesus Christ died and paid the the penalty that we all deserve because of our sin upon the cross. He was was cursed upon that cross, bearing the wrath of God, bearing our sin, taking our guilt, taking our shame, taking it all. Isn't it amazing that God would command everyone, everywhere to repent so they could be saved? Because God sent His Son, the image of God, incarnate, to rescue us. So notice what it says. It says that we are going to be judged by who? By a man whom he has appointed. The God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. One day when we meet our maker, when we breathe our last, we're going to stare into the eyes of Jesus. And Jesus will either say, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Or, away from me. I never knew you. We are either declared righteous because we believe fully in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, or we're not. There's only two options there. So Paul is giving these Athenians who want new knowledge, the greatest gift that anyone could ever give. He's giving them salvation. This is how you become right with God. By repenting, by changing your mind of how you worship and how you think and giving yourself to the one true God. Listen, what are your idols in your life? What do you need to repent of today? What is keeping you from having a a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? Because there may be something in your life that will grow grow and grow and grow and cause you to drift from the Lord Jesus Christ. It could be many things. It could be your own comfort. It could be your home. It could be your, your, your body. It could be uh, your position at work, wealth, sex, drugs. The reason why God has given the community of saints is that we are idol worshipers by nature. The nature of human beings are idol worshipers. And when we come together as a body of believers, what we're saying is we don't want to follow our idols. We want to follow Christ. Help me follow Christ. Help me love Christ more. So every single week we come and we confess our idols. We confess the things that we valued more this past week than the Lord Jesus Christ. And we confess them and say, God, help me. Help me put these to death. Help me be a a good reflection, a holy reflection of the character of my great God. We recite that every single week. So that we could repent. And as Paul does often in the book of Acts, the, 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 the assurance that we have is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus Christ didn't just die for our sins. He gave us the hope of the resurrection from the dead. So when we breathe our last, which we all will one day, We will know that we will be in God's presence because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And if we share in a death like his, we may certainly share in a resurrection like his. This is the the foundation here. But look at how people respond to this this glorious hope of the resurrection in verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. It was completely a new thing, this idea of resurrection. We're 2,000 years after Christ and resurrection is, is normal. But here they're saying there's a bodily resurrection from the dead. And they mocked Paul. How could you say that? Now We may say that the spark inside us may float up to heaven. And our soul and not our body may, may live forever. But no, Paul saying your body will live forever. It will be remade in the image of God. Some mocked him. Others said we will hear again about this. So Paul went out for their mist. But some men joined him and believed, among whom were also Dionysus, the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris, and others with him. So you see, see three responses. And I, I think in this crowd, we're probably not going to get the first one. Right? I'm speaking to a church family. Most of you are, are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. So if I say the resurrection of the dead, you're probably not going to mock Jesus. You're probably going to believe that, it, that to be true. But I think where we're probably more in danger of is that second response. We'll hear about this again. Notice verse 18, chapter 18, verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. We don't know if Paul went back and spoke to them again. We'll hear again about this. Now, There may be some of you here today who have idols in your life and you know it. You know you're not worshiping God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You're following the things of this world. And you, like many in Paul's day, will say, I'll hear you again about this. I'll come back next Sunday. Maybe. But we all know we're not guaranteed next Sunday. I pray that you would be like the last response. That you would run from your idols. That you would run from them. That you would pursue Christ with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Your your counterfeit gods, money, sex, and power will end up in nothing. The only one that can satisfy you is is the Lord Jesus Christ. So I pray that we would live free, but not free as independent creatures of this world, but we live free lives under the authority of our Creator, under the authority of of our sovereign King, the Lord Jesus Christ. For, beloved, there comes a day, every day, One day when God has fixed, a day that God has fixed, he will call all men to judgment. So on that day, I pray that your only hope, your only hope is in the man whom God has appointed, the man Jesus Christ, who rose from the dead to give hope to all the world. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us run from our idols. I pray, God, that you would allow us to turn... um, from all the, the things that are charming our lust, God. I pray that we would be aware of the pride of our eyes and the pride of our, our flesh, God. I pray that we would run from it and that we would run to Christ. So, God, I pray that you would expose our idols, that we would turn from them, and that we would hear those beautiful words that we are forgiven. Uh, that, and we just would want to wait. We want to wait, Lord, for Jesus, whom you sent, to deliver us from the wrath to come. We ask this in his name. Amen.